0: This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we haven't done Q&A in a while, so we're going to launch into Q&A Volume 6. But before we get into the first question, it was pointed out to me by a good friend of mine, so shout out to Tyler Conradi. But uh, back on episode 36, I know where my wife is where I talked about the former Thunder coach, Monty Williams, uh, he pointed out to me very lovingly and very uh, politely that, hey, uh, you said you're a big Thunder fan, and I know you're a big Thunder fan, but do you realize what you call the coach of the Thunder? And so I obviously know that the uh, the coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder is Billy Donovan. But for whatever reason in that podcast, I said Landon Donovan, and not just once, I said it twice. And so I obviously know that Landon Donovan is a retired USA team USA soccer player and that Billy Donovan is the name of the coach. But this is me eating crow. This is me falling on my sword. This is me doing all those things. So I would like to correct the record from podcast 36 so that we can all move on. We all good? All right, guys, let's get into the first question. Did God call us to be beta males and alpha males? So this was a really interesting question, and I got to be honest with you guys, when I got this question, initially I was like, oh, this this one's going to be easy to answer. But then I was chewing on it quite a bit more. And I was like, well, there's a whole lot of nuance here, right? It's like, okay, well, do we all agree on what we mean by beta males? do we all agree on what we mean by alpha males? And so there are people that have different ideas on what those two things mean, how they correlate with one or one another. And then you start getting into, okay, what would God want us to do, uh, in terms of the continuum between those two things. But the the thing that I think is the most acceptable, I think for most individuals, whenever we're looking at beta males versus alpha males is effeminacy, right? So we don't look at an alpha male, whatever we we see or view as an alpha male, as being someone that shows very many effeminate qualities. I think that's a, a fair assumption because there are some things that people think alpha males are that I wouldn't necessarily agree with and vice versa. Same thing on the beta male side. But I think that that's kind of a good central point. Uh, kind of how they act in most situations. Is it overtly manly or is it less manly? And so then when I started thinking about the corollaries in terms of how we go to scripture and what we can glean from that, uh, I kept coming back to first Corinthians uh, chapter six, and I was looking at verses nine and 10. And the thing is, is I normally stick in the uh, English standard version, ESV. But when I went back to the King James version, I think that this was helpful. And and hopefully I can tease this out here in a second, but let me go and read first Corinthians six, nine and 10 to you in the King James Version, and then we'll launch him from there. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the one thing I really want to point out there is, you know, right there in the middle or towards the end of verse nine, and that's nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. And so some people I know whenever you're reading through that, if you're reading NIV or if you're reading ESV or new NLT, like whatever you're reading, the word effeminate doesn't pop up. So normally you see it as uh, men practicing homosexuality, or it'll just talk about homosexuality in in general. But uh, the thing that's really interesting about this part, when you go back to the King James version, the original King James version, is it brings up the word effeminate. Because when you go back to the Greek, and I'm not even going to pretend to be the guy to give you a lesson in the Greek right now, but the word that's used here is basically a combination of the word man and the word bed. And so it's like, you know, basically bedding a man or having sex with a man, a man having sex with a man. So that's what the word is used here. But when they translated it into the King James Version, it came out as effeminate, right? And so um, the thing about this, again, I'm going to go back to the original, which is effeminacy is kind of closer to beta than it is alpha. And so basically, if we're going to look at it through that lens, and we're going to try to glean what God means from that, I do not think God would want us to be more towards beta and less towards alpha, right? And there's unhealthy alpha. And, and I'm sure some of you are thinking that right now. And again, like I said, there's a lot of nuance in this and the whole podcast isn't going to be about this question. So I'm just trying to, to get through it in a appropriate manner. But when we look at the, the undaunted life definition of manhood, again, it's got a guy that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. I consider that to be much closer to alpha than beta as well. I mean, I mean, obviously, That's something that I would be looking at. So when we're looking at the continuum, I think that God would absolutely, in our our striving to be more masculine and more manly, that would take us more towards the alpha side than the beta side. But one thing I do want to point out here is something that's been talked about a lot in a lot of different ways. and, And so I'll try to be a little bit unique on it, but everyone talks about Matthew 5, 5 here. And so it's blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And obviously you've heard every pastor on the planet basically say meek doesn't mean weak. I'm, I'm telling you that. But here's the thing is when we hear the word meek, even outside of the context of Matthew 5, 5, we do think weak. And in 2018, we think weak, we think gentle, we think subservient, quiet, submissive. Like th- Those are the things that kind of come up in our brains. But this is another very important thing whenever you do go back to the Greek here, uh, because there's been some some people that have kind of come out and and said they know what that word's supposed to mean, and it's not always the same. But but essentially, what the Greek word used here whenever we use the term meek, it's humble to authority. It's uh, a willingness to be corrected, um, you know, hesitant to be uh, or to be unnecessarily overpowering to just kind of roll over somebody. But the big thing here is that th- this word meek, it's talking about self-control. And overall, just the virtue of mastering personal desires and passions. And so that that's something that I think is really important for us to think about here, because I know a lot of people have asked whenever Jordan Peterson was on the Joe Rogan podcast last, he was asking a lot about, you know, he basically came up and said that the term meek is, you know, someone having their sword, knowing how to use it, but leaving it sheathed, Right. And there are people that come out and they're like, oh, Jordan Peterson, he's not a theologian. What's he doing? Trying to tell us what the Greek means and blah, 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 and going that. But overall, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. That, you know, it's having the control to know that you don't need to overpower a situation. And so um, I think along with some more spiritual maturity, that guys are not going to want to go towards weakness. And even in the times where we would have considered Jesus meek, He was not weak when he was going through those situations. He was just very, very controlled. Just think, just think about him, you know, be basically being, having to drag himself to Golgotha, you know, to be crucified and finish the crucifixion The the things that he could have done to get himself out of that situation, he had the power, like he could have overpowered that situation completely. Right. But he, but he chose not to. So he was very meek in those situations, but you cannot say that he was subservient, submissive, gentle to the point that, that basically he was under the complete control of somebody else. So again, I hope that again, that's a a very nuanced question. Uh, I didn't want to go too terribly far into that, but hopefully that's helpful. All right. Next question. What are your top three albums of all time? Okay, so uh, when I did my top three albums, it's like, all right, do you have like any uniqueness in your musical taste? Because here's the thing is I do have a fairly eclectic musical taste. Like I can go from jazz to red dirt to heavy metal to more singer songwriters. So I just kind of go all over the place. But when I did my top three albums, they were all metal albums. So that's just kind of how it goes. So uh, I guess my number one album of all time is that if I can only listen to one album for the rest of my life, it'd be the album where blood and, Fry- where blood and fire bring rest by the band Zayo. So the thing is, is guys, a lot of you don't even know who this band is, but Zayo is basically a legendary underground metal band. So kind of started out in the Christian realms and have, have gone a little bit more secular, even though the singer Dan is, is a Christian, it's kind of a complicated deal. I'm not really going to get into that on this podcast, but it was an album released in 1998. It was the first one with Dan as the singer and anyone that's into metal music or, you know, basically your favorite metal band. And I mean like a real metal band, not like, you know, Nickelback or whatever you, you guys listen to, but like an actual metal band. A lot of these guys point to Dan Wayant, the, the lead singer of Zayo, as being one of the guys, one of those iconic voices. And so this was the first album where we got to hear this iconic metal scream. And so it's just an incredible, incredible album. It was like the second Christian uh, metal album that I owned behind uh, Reborn by Living Sacrifice. So incredible album. I would have to have that one. The second one may seem a little bit strange, but obviously I got into metal as a little kid. And so when I was a little kid, you know, Metallica was a thing. Now, when I was in elementary school, just to kind of give you a sense of timing, Metallica Reload had just came out. And so Load and Reload were kind of like, you know, people were like, who is this band now? They've cut their hair and they're not as heavy as they used to be. So I kind of had to go backwards in my Metallica fandom. So I had to find, you know, Kill 'em All and Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets and and Justice for All and the Black Album kind of after the fact. I had to kind of figure those things out. And I followed them even through, you know, some of their terrible um, recent albums. But uh, now that they have the new bassist, those albums are pretty good. But basically, here's the thing. The album S&M, the one that they did with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra is one of my top three albums of all time. And people are like, you've got to be kidding a live album, you know, one with a, you know, a choir in the background or like whatever they were doing. Like, but the thing about it is, is it wasn't a choir. It was a very fantastically done concert. Like they, they did so much effort. They put so much effort into this concert. They had so many people involved and to have an orchestra, sound like they were a part of this metal band whenever they were playing some of their newer stuff but also some of their really heavy Old, you know, faster stuff. It was just such a, a well put together album, right? And and again, you know, I don't agree with everything that the guys in Metallica sing about or the things that they do, but but at the end of the day, this is an amazing, amazing double album. It was released in 1999, so if you're a Metallica fan, you probably know about it. But but even if you're not, even if you're not even really into metal, just hearing how it kind of coalesces with a you know with a with this this big ensemble orchestra was really really impressive. And obviously, you guys know by now that uh, August Burns Red, they're a huge, huge band in my life. I'm really, really um, a huge fan of that band. They're probably my second favorite band behind Zale. Um, And I would have to have their album, Messengers. So that was in 2007 is when that was released. And so they've released a ton of records since then. But that was kind of like the core record for them. So I had listened to the, the previous record and really, really got into them. But Messengers was kind of that dividing line album. First album with uh, the new singer, Jake. And And so just a really incredible album. It's something that you can listen to over and over. Actually, just last year, they released a remix of the album where they basically kind of re-edited it and, you know, messed with the levels and all those different things. So again, the three albums would be Zayo, Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest, Metallica S&M, and August Burns Red, Messengers. All right, guys, next question. Can we stop school shootings? Okay, so fairly serious question, but um, essentially, no. No, we cannot the thing is, guys, is evil will always find a way. And and I know people right now, especially if you're more on the left uh, side of the political aisle, you're gonna be like, of course we can, if we just do this or we just do that. And, and the thing about it is guys is for all being intellectually honest. And I've, I'm sure you've heard this argument before on most of these school shootings, there weren't laws that if they were on the books at the time would have prevented that thing from happening. You know, the thing about criminals is they don't really care about the law. So if they want to do something heinous and terrible, it doesn't mean we can't make it harder on them. But but no, there's really no way that we can just completely eradicate school shootings. And, And there's a lot of, I guess, macro issues that you need to deal with when addressing this. And the first, I guess, would be addressing the mental health issue in the United States. And so a lot of these people that end up going on these rampages, especially these young men, they have mental health problems. They have definable mental health problems that that we could look at and look for certain treatment, but that kind of gets into the next macro issue, which is address the prescription drug problem in the United States. You know, like a lot of these people after the fact, when we look into them, these are people that were on a lot of prescription medications some of them for, for mental health and for ADHD and for all these different things. And, and I'm not saying that if we medicate those people, that, that leads to mass killings. I'm, I'm certainly not making that. But there's an issue with prescription drugs, and that does aid in some of the things that happen here. And then obviously, we've talked about this on the podcast as well, address the fatherlessness problem in the United States. I mean, a lot of these boys that, that are doing these things, that are doing these, these kind of mass shootings in a school, a lot of them don't have great home lives. And a lot of them, you know, dad's not there. Dad's kind of aloof and doesn't really pay attention and all those different things. And again, this isn't dad's fault. You know, I'm I'm very much so a personal responsibility individual. But, you know, those are kind of the macro issues, mental health, prescription drugs, fatherlessness, that kind of lead to some of this. But then if we're if we come out of the clouds a little bit and come down to the ground level, there's are there are certain ways that we can mitigate some of the problems of school shootings. And we've talked about them on this podcast before. And the first thing is, is it's very, very unpopular, but allow trained faculty and staff to carry on campus. I think it's absolutely insane that you could carry everywhere else in your life. You can carry to the grocery store, you can carry to the movies, or you can carry, you know, over to a party or whatever you want to do. But the moment you get on school property, you can't carry anymore. I I mean, you you look back and there's been some school, excuse me, school shootings in Israel. um, But then they started allowing the, the, the people like the faculty and staff to carry. And there had been like two school shootings in in the last extended period of time. And both of those school shootings were stopped by armed teachers. So the thing about it is, is no, I would never be an advocate saying, if you will, if you're a teacher in K through 12, that you have to carry a gun. That's, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. I would never say that. And you, you can't even find a second amendment absolutist that would even think that that was a good idea. But if you are a trained individual And you want to carry, you should be able to carry on these campuses because a lot of these, you know, coaches or, or faculty staff or principals, they're, they're using their bodies to shield kids. I'd rather them have, you know, have a weapon that they could, you know, engage uh, the perpetrator directly. Right. So there's, you know, I guess unpopular opinion, number one, but I guess the other thing too is, is more security at schools. Would be a way to mitigate this. I mean, this is duh. I mean, we talk about school resource officers at these different places. And even in the community I live in right now, they're talking about, well, should we add more school resource officers? Is it going to make the kids feel unsafe? And, you know, is it going to really change the environment? And it's just, are, really? Are we really having this debate? Like, when's the last time you walked into an event where there was security and you felt less safe? Just think about it from a basic standpoint. Think about the last time you went to any massive sporting event college football game, NBA game, major league baseball game, whatever the thing may be. All those places have security. In a lot of those places, you can see the security. Think about airports. You go through a long line to get through security. Do you feel less secure once you're in the airport? Are you literally sitting there like, oh, oh, I'm in this crazy place. The airport must be a big target because they've got all this security. These kids won't give a crap, man. They're not going to care at all. Like if if they had school resource officers or armed police that are, that are walking around the exterior of the school or even walking around the inside, it's not going to be a big deal. And then another thing we talked about before on this podcast, a lot of this stuff, guys, I'm kind of rehashing from an old episode, actually episode 10 of this podcast is called Guns in the Reality of Evil. So I talk about this more in length on that podcast. But another way to mitigate school shootings is school partitioning, like security partitioning. Now, the thing that's going to be hard is basically retroactively doing this in schools, especially schools that, you know, may have issues, you know, just in general, being with the upkeep of the schools, it's kind of hard for us to then put in this the security partitioning, but especially with schools that are just being built now, which there are a lot being built, having security partitions. Because in a lot of places we have basically fire partitions. So if there's a fire in one part of the building, we can close off that part of the building. And then we don't have any issues. Uh, it doesn't spread as much as it could. You can do the same thing. There are hospitals out there in military bases and things like that, where if there is a perpetrator in one area, that area can be locked down. So this person basically doesn't have free reign of all the hallways and all the breezeways and all the stairwells and things like that, that you can keep this person in one area. And it also helps whenever SWAT or police show up on the scene, it's going to be easier for them to identify where the perpetrator is. So again, guys, it's kind of getting into a touchy subject for a lot of people, but if you would like to know more kind of where I land on this issue, I did a really long episode. Like I said, go back and listen to episode 10. All right. Next question. Do you think Hollywood is pushing the same sex stuff a little too much in movies and television? Um, So ultimately, yes. Um, The thing that's really interesting about all of this is um, the GLAAD Foundation, or GLAAD, that's the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, they're pushing for more LGBT representation in Hollywood, like big time. So there's there's a very growing percentage of studios and shows and movies that are showing more LGBTQ plus da 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 characters and and people that are in these shows, but it's really an outsized percentage for their representation within the U.S. population. And I guess what I mean by that is you know there's a lot of different stats out there, but most of the stats are around 3.8 or 4 percent of Americans identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans about 3.8%. But we're seeing all these shows, like a quarter of the shows that we're seeing that are coming out, especially in 2018, they've got an LGBT character, right? But but here's the thing, guys, is here's the key, is whether that's going to keep you from watching a show or a movie or whatever, I, I guess that's up to you because, you know, are you ignoring all the other sinful things in the show so that you can watch it for these reasons and, and now you're going to stand up because there's an LGBT character or whatever? Like, uh, look, I get it. But overall, Hollywood is just trying to normalize this. They're they're trying to show everybody that these people are, they're, they're normal. This is a completely normal way of behaving. This is an acceptable way of behaving. And it's kind of a outside of culture type of thing. So this isn't just culture. Like this is reality. That's what they're trying to to basically say that as there's even, um, a lot of gay and trans characters that are showing up in kids shows. I mean, you, you may have heard this because they're talking about if they're going to make a Frozen two or whatever, like all you guys out there with kids, I'm sure you'd, you've heard about that. But Elsa, who is, I guess, the, the queen from Frozen, I'm pretty sure that's a blonde one. So don't don't yell at me if I got that wrong. I'll correct it on a later episode. But there's there's thoughts that she might be a lesbian. And so that's why she like doesn't need a man and all these different things. It's because she's actually a lesbian. And so, uh, again, if you plant these seeds in children's heads when they're so young, when their brains aren't fully developed for like another 20 years or something like that, obviously you can push the culture in a certain direction and show them that this is normal. Like this is a normal way of thinking. Like just think about what the entertainment looked like. You know, ask your parents or your grandparents like sitcoms back in the day. You would never, you know, you would also never see a man and a woman sleeping in the same bed. But even when they showed them in the same bed, it wasn't like this this attitude that sex was just kind of this thing that happens, right? You can be with anybody at any time and everybody wants it and, and all those different things. But now promiscuity sexually is just something that you see you just see it all over the place, but, but even it's, it's nefarious in kids shows. Cause you'll see these shows of kids that are in like junior high or something like that. And they just go from, from relationship to relationship to relationship. And it seems innocent enough because oh my gosh, they're just kids. But whenever you advance it a step or two, it's showing that these, these kids are just basically moving from relationship to relationship. And when they become sexually active, that means they're moving from sexual partner to sexual partner to sexual partner. And so, so guys, I'm really not taking it to an extreme there, but um, th- that's the thing is it's Hollywood is pushing this, you know, Hollywood certainly has an agenda, but at the end of the day, Hollywood, there's a reason why the the movies that don't push the LGBT uh, type of parameters and don't push those things down our throat, those are the movies that tend to be more popular, right? because when you're looking uh, to basically appeal to your base, that's a very niche thing. But when you're looking to appeal to everybody, you're not really going to do those things. And then you open yourselves up to boycotts and things like that, blah, blah, blah. But, but yes, it's a little bit ridiculous. Even if we just look at it in terms of percentages, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, I certainly don't think it's going to slow down at any point. All right. Next question. What is the best investment you made this year? Okay. That's a, that's an interesting question. And I asked a guy about it. He said he bought a Ninja this year. Like, I guess that's a little blender or something like that. So he's like, you, you got to make sure you go and get one. So, uh, to my buddy that sent me this question, uh, all right. Noted. I will try to get myself a Ninja at some point this year, but you know, this, this is going to be a little bit ridiculous, but I have a, I have a long box truck. So it's got a six and a half foot bed and I needed to get a cover for it. And my wife and I were going on a camping trip at, up in Estes park, Colorado this summer. And we were trying to think, you know, should we get a camper shell? You know, should we get, uh, you know, should we get a, a a tent and just have like a bed cover, like what should we do? And so uh, there's even those tents that go on the backs of trucks. I don't know if you guys have seen those, but the reviews, even on some of the good ones, weren't that great. They kind of tear up and don't really last very long. And so what we ended up doing is I bought a backflip G2 to no cover. So that's basically a bed cover. It's one that kind of folds up and folds up against the back of the window, the, the back of the, the back window of the truck of the cab. And this thing is awesome. Like it is absolutely awesome. I spent so much time looking at bed covers because there's a billion different things. You can get ones that roll up, some that are fabric, some that are metal, some that, you know, match the rest of the truck and they've got hydraulics or they come up at an angle or all these different things and they vary in in their expense. And the thing is, is I'm not one of those guys that likes to buy something, try it out and then go buy something else and just switch them out here or there. I want to install it on the truck and then never touch it again like I want it to stay on there. I want it to last and all those things. But essentially after one camping trip with this, it is just awesome because my tailgate locks. And once the thing uh, flips down, everything's locked up and completely secure. Um, You know, it's, it's airtight. So there's not really much water that gets in and it's been in torrential downpour rain and not a whole lot of water gets in the bed. But in terms of an investment, the truck that I just got, you know, the Silverado, I'm going to have that for a very, very long time. And I'm, I'm assuming that this cover will be a part of that for a long time. I've seen it on big trucks, on little trucks like Chevy Colorados and so it's and guys I am not sp- sponsored by Backflip. I don't get anything from them but you know just to answer this question that is legitimately one of the best things that I've bought recently. Okay? Next question. Is speaking in tongues a hoax? <laughs> okay. So I guess this uh, guys wanting me to to get on the charismatics here so I'll see if I can not get myself in trouble. Um so the the thing is is speaking in tongues is all over scripture. Like there are scriptures all over the place. And so I looked up just a few just to kind of make sure. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, but maybe you forgot where it was because we see it in Acts and we also see it in first Corinthians a lot. But Acts two, four says this, all of them were filled with the Holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them. So That's early on in Acts. And then later in Acts, we see in Acts uh, 19, 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. But then also when you go to first Corinthians, basically the the biggest chunks of chapters 12, 13, and 14 deal with speaking in tongues. And so this is what I'll say. I don't come from a charismatic background. I've talked about this a lot. And I know a lot of you guys out there uh, share this. I didn't grow up in church. So the first church I went to was a kind of a small town church of Christ. So if any of you guys know what that's like, it's a, it's a very conservative, almost I don't know, cult like isn't really the best way of saying it, but my, that's what my wife says, and she grew up in that church. But basically, it's a this is the only church for God type of thing, and this is how we're going to sing, and this is how we're going to do things. And so that was kind of my early church, and then I started to go to, go to a Baptist church of my own, and now my wife and, and I go to a Bible church, but we used to go to this big non denominational church for forever. So the thing about it is, is what I'm saying is, I've never been to one of those churches, like a charismatic church, or uh, I think Episcopalians do the, the speaking in tongues and things like that. So I've never really seen it. So I can't really speak to it as, you know, kind of a firsthand experience, but this is what I can guarantee you is that people certainly fake it, right? I think it was on a, what was it in a the movie Borat or something like that. I think the, the main character went to this church and they were kind of speaking in tongues. And the, the thing about it, the thing about it is, is the whole speaking in tongues thing does hurt the church. Even assuming that no one's faking it that it's never a hoax. It hurts the church just because people outside the church will never understand this. It's just ridiculous. It just seems like there's people running up and down the aisles going, like they're just like freaking out and and flailing and and doing all these crazy things. So it's hard for people to understand, even if it's real. And so uh, again, I I don't know that I really have a a great conclusion to this question, but I can, again, it was, is speaking in tongues a hoax? No, it is not a hoax it can happen. It is certainly possible. We've seen it in scripture. I've heard about a lot of people that have, you know, their own prayer language and things like that. So I would never be the guy to come out and say that everyone's doing it. Everyone that is doing it is faking people or tricking people or or something like that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of hard to really know for sure. And I don't know, it's weird to me and it's kind of one of those things, but you know, there are a lot of things that are weird to other people. So, you know, spiritual warfare is weird to some people and, and all these different things. So, man, I think I'm just like rambling on this question now. So I'm just going to go ahead and cut it off there. Uh, no, it's not a hoax. It can happen. Uh, people fake it. I don't really know when, so we'll move on from there. All right, guys, next question. Conor or Habib? All right. So this is obviously a question that is in reference to the huge fight coming up on October 6th. So if you're listening to this on time, uh, this will be released obviously before that fight, but this is the main event for UFC 229. And guys, this is likely the biggest fight in UFC history. This is Conor McGregor's comeback fight uh, versus Habib Nurmagomedov. I'm going to mess up. Of course I messed up his last name. Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov. There you go. There you go, people. There's my Russian, Nurmagomedov. So Connor versus Habib. Uh, Habib is an undefeated fighter. He's twenty six and zero. Uh, He's had some impressive victories as of late, Um, but then it's Conor McGregor. He's the biggest fighter in the history of the UFC. This is his first fight in the UFC since November of 2016. Yes, it has been that long. Uh, That's whenever he beat Eddie Alvarez to get his second belt. So he absolutely murdered Eddie Alvarez at UFC 205. uh, Just embarrassed him in every way possible and won the 155 pound belt. Uh, And that was in addition to the belt he already had, the 145 pound belt. But but then obviously in 2017 in the summer he fights Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match. It hasn't been back in the UFC since. So just the fact that this is Connor's comeback fight makes this a huge fight. But since it's a, against Habib, that's that's just a massive, massive fight. And for a lot of you guys, I even had my dad ask me the other day, he's like, hey, is Connor going to be fighting soon? Uh, not really. A lot of people really know about it because Connor's not really doing it in a lot of media. But there is a ton of of bad blood between Conor and Habib, a ton. And so to to kind of give you guys a little bit of the backstory, there's a guy that's on Conor's team. He's a longtime teammate of Conor McGregor. His name's Artem Lobov. So Artem is an Irish, or sorry, he's a Russian guy who has basically kind of been accepted into the Irish community because of all the training that he's done in Ireland and being a part of Conor's team. But Artem was uh, basically walking through the lobby of a hotel when Habib and all of his team kind of they they were kind of confronting him a little bit and I guess there was a little bit of beef between Artem and Habib they they call it oh it's just a Russia thing like whatever that means but the problem was is that Artem was by himself he didn't have any teammates he didn't have any coaches with him it was just him and then it was Habib and his entire team and so Habib kind of got in his face and you know Artem basically stood his ground and but it was very very tense it was it was very very awkward um to say the least. But apparently what ended up happening is when Connor found out about this, he lost his mind. Like he lost his mind at the thought that one of his teammates was basically, you know, intimidated by a bunch of other people, especially the the ringleader being a guy that's in his division that he may eventually fight. And so most of you know what ended up happening. Um after the UFC two two twenty-three Media Day, this was back in April, they're at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Um, whenever all the fighters were taken from the media onto the buses... Uh, you saw Connor come in with like two dozen guys, basically thugs for hire that he, that he had brought in and they were like attacking the buses. They were, they were throwing bike racks and doing all these different things. And I guess the coup de grace of the whole thing was Connor took a dolly and threw it through the window of one of these buses, the bus that, that, um, Habib was on. And so, uh, Connor and his you know thugs, they ran off, they eventually got arrested and, you know, Connor and another guy were, were charged and, and Connor was eventually, basically it was re- uh, reduced down. To a misdemeanor, he has to do like pay a fine and pay for the bus and you know do some community service and stuff like that. But just a ton of bad blood. And, and the thing that became readily apparent is in the in the wake of all this, Dana White, who runs the UFC, you know, talked about how how embarrassing it was and how terrible it was. But we all knew that this was gold when it came to promoting a fight, because the thing is, is they're already going to be fist fighting each other, but when you have bad blood. Or, you know, this guy said something about your mama and this guy, you know, did something to your old teammate and you're going to get back at him. It just increases the stakes a little bit. And and that's what we have here. So it wasn't the least bit surprising to me that as soon as Connor was exonerated or, or brought down to a misdemeanor, that not, not that much farther after that, they were going to announce a fight between him and Habib. Because here's the thing is Connor never lost the 155 pound belt. So... Uh, but the UFC at one point just had to move on because Conor hadn't fought in forever. You can't just leave the belt hanging out there for, you know, months and months and months at a time, even over a year. And so they stripped Conor of the belt and Habib fought for the belt and won. But, uh, we knew this fight was coming. We knew it was going to happen. So it's happening here in October. So let's kind of break down the fight before I give my prediction. Cause even standing here, I don't know exactly what my prediction is going to be. So let's see where it goes. Uh, the thing about this fight, guys, this fight can really only go one of two ways. It's either going to be an early knockout for Conor, like, you know, first or second round, or it's going to be a five round mauling for Habib. I mean, that's really it. Those are the only two ways this fight can go. Uh, every other way this fight can break down would be a surprise. If Conor won by submission or if Habib won by knockout, those would all be incredibly, incredibly difficult things to fathom. But the reality is, is that Conor has never, ever faced a grappler like Habib. So he's fought some guys that had good wrestling. So Eddie Alvarez is a good wrestler, but he didn't really use it against Conor. He tried to shoot a couple of times, but they were kind of like halfway shots, so they were stuffed easily. Um, he was taken down at will by Chad Mendez. Chad Mendez just took him down and took him down and this was when Chad Mendez came in if y'all remember this is when Conor won the Interim belt before he knocked out Jose Aldo. Chad Mendez took took him down even though he he didn't have the the same gas tank cuz he hadn't been training for as long. So it, it's the thing is is Conor is not a very great grappler and Habib is far and away better than all the other grapplers that Conor has fought. But at the same time, Habib has never faced a striker like Conor McGregor, like not even close. And, and again, Connor basically sticks to boxing. He does a little bit of kickboxing, a little bit of Muay Thai, but he basically sticks to boxing. And here's the thing with Habib. Habib gets hit a lot. Like he gets hit a lot, a lot right? But the other thing is, is people look at uh, Habib's last several fights and they're like, oh, he's going to kill Connor because of these fights and what we saw in these fights. But the thing about it is, is all those fights went the same way. I mean, it was just takedown, ground and pound, mauling by Habib. But let's look at these last three fighters he fought. The, the last one he fought was Al Iaquinna, and he fought Al Iaquinna on one day's notice. Because if you'll remember, Tony Ferguson got hurt. So they tried to find a last minute replacement. They got Max Holloway in there, but they were concerned about Max Holloway making the weight. Lo and behold, he couldn't make the weight. And then Ally Aquina gets in there on one day's notice. So yeah, Habib mauled him, but there was no notice. He couldn't even prepare for him. The fight before that, he fought Edson Barbosa, which if you know anything about Edson Barbosa, is he is a tremendous kicker. He is not really known for his boxing, but his kicking game is insane. But when you're going against a really, really good grappler, you want the other guy to kick you because you're going to catch one of those kicks and you're going to take him down. So as long as you don't get kicked in the head and get knocked out, you're going to be good to go. So that, you know, that was a mauling. But again, it was against a guy without great boxing. The only guy that Habib has really faced that has really, really solid boxing, not elite level, but really solid boxing, was the fight before Edson Barbosa when he fought Michael Johnson. So Michael Johnson is like a, he's like a fringe ranked guy. So the rankings only go to like 15. He's like a somewhere between 15 and 20 type of guy at 155. Like he's good, but he's not outstanding. And if you go back and watch that fight, Michael Johnson was piecing Habib up in that first round, just piecing him up. And then finally Habib's like, all right, I will take you down and I will break you. Like that's just basically what he was doing. So I guess it's prediction time. I've like delayed long enough. Again, I can only see this fight going one of two ways. And and Connor hasn't fought in a really long time, but his boxing is in a, at an elite level, especially when he spent basically the the entire last year of his career only boxing, getting ready for Floyd. But I guess gun to my head right now, I have to predict the outcome of this fight in order to live and see the future. I would probably put my money on Habib, and and you guys know I'm a Connor fan. I'm a, I'm a big Connor fan, even with all of his stupid crap that he's done, but. Habib's wrestling and grappling is on a completely different level. And so <clears throat> the thing about it is is, you know, Habib doesn't finish a lot of fights. Most of his fights go to decision, but they're not close decisions. He has a lot of 10-8 rounds. He has some 10-7 rounds. So they're incredibly, incredibly lopsided fights. And Connor doesn't have the greatest gas tank in the world. He, he has had a tendency to, to completely gas out. And so if he doesn't knock out Habib in the first two rounds, I think those last three rounds, rounds are just going to be a, a slog. So um, again, gun to my head. I got to go with Habib. Uh, but then I think uh, the thing that's interesting to talk about from here is what happens after the fight. So if Connor wins or loses, or if Habib wins or loses, like, what does it look like after the fight? Here are my predictions. So, you know, hold me to it. We can laugh at him later if I'm really, really wrong. But I think if Connor wins, he's going to fight GSP at 155 or 165. And, and so guys you are like, well, there's not 165 pound division. The, the UFC has been toying with the idea of a 165 pound division for a long time now. So that would essentially go. They would have a 155. They've had a. They would have a 165. Welterweight would move to 175, and then you would have 185. So if y'all know anything about GSP, he was obviously the longtime 170 pound champion, and then he came back and fight fought Michael Bisman at 185. But you know that was kind of a one time deal. But we've seen some some evidence that GSP has been doing some like test cuts down to 155 maybe, and so potentially he's gearing himself up for a fight like that. But again, it would kind of be one of those deals that if Conor beats Habib, and then they open up the 165-pound division, and they have the two, two of the biggest three fighters in the history of the UFC fight each other, and Conor and GSP, that would be gigantic. So if Conor wins, I think he fights GSP, or he's going to try to fight Floyd again. Like, I feel like within a week of this next fight, him and Floyd are going to start John back and forth if Connor wins. And, you know, I don't know that the, the world is necessarily wanting to see that fight again, but it doesn't mean they won't make it and won't make a lot of money. So that's my opinion if Connor wins, because Connor's not going to, you know, fight Tony Ferguson and then Kevin Lee and then, eh, you know... Dustin Poirier again. Like, he's not going to do that. Like, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. He's going to make huge money, huge fights, and those guys aren't going to get him huge fights. So, if Connor loses, I think it's pretty clear he's going to fight Nate Diaz for a third time. So, you know, put a bow on that trilogy. This one will be at 155 because Nate Diaz is fighting later this year. He's fighting Dustin Poirier at Madison Square Garden. But if Nate Diaz beats Dustin Poirier and you gave him the option, hey, you can fight for the belt or you can fight Connor, he's going to fight Connor, whether Connor has the belt or not. Especially if Conor doesn't have the belt, that's where he's going to make all the money. He's fighting Conor again. That's where he's made the majority of his money so far. So if Conor loses, I really think he fights Nate Diaz, or to be honest, I think he might retire. You know, he he got a hundred million dollars or so for fighting Floyd Mayweather. He's going to get a unbelievable amount of money for this fight against Habib. Like I said, a lot of people are predicting that this may go over the two million pay-per-views uh, pay-per-view buys, which would blow the doors off of his own records. But anyway, that's what I think. If Connor loses. If Habib wins, I think he fights Tony Ferguson, and if Habib loses, I think he fights Tony Ferguson. So that's basically the thing for for, uh, MMA fans, UFC fans. I think Habib versus Tony Ferguson has been canceled... If not four times, I think three times. I'm pretty sure it's three or four times. They've been scheduled and something happened. Injuries or someone doesn't make weight or something like that. These guys have never been able to fight. So I think regardless of what happens, Tony Ferguson's fighting on the same card. He's fighting before Connor. Some people think is because if Connor Habib drop out, then he kinda hops into the to the show. But at the end of the day, Connor and Habib are fighting each other next. Like there are no two ways about it. So I know I spent uh, quite a bit of time on that, but guys, it's an absolutely huge, huge fight. And so again, I kind of feel bad for picking against my boy, but it's just how it goes. All right. Next question. What's the role Christians should play in the lives of people in the LGBTQ community? How should we respond if asked if they need to change in order to have a relationship with Jesus? And so a uh, very good question. This was actually given to me by a guy who does some um, campus ministry um, here in the United States. And so I think this is a really important question that he asked me. Uh, the thing about it, guys, is what role should we play in the lives of people in the LGBTQ community? It's the exact same role we should play in the lives of a non-LGBTQ people. The exact same role. Like we, we share the gospel. We live it out. We support them. Uh, We point out their sinfulness in the areas where it's appropriate. We we correct them if needed, and be in community. I mean, I don't feel like this is very hard. I think people think of that category of people as being some sort of interesting thing. Like, oh, we should, you know, we should come about uh, this thing a whole whole differently and kind of go a different route. I don't really have that same viewpoint. I mean, they're still people. They're still sinners. It's just that society has given them a category to put themselves in so that we can't talk about them as easily or that, so that we can't identify them more easily, right? It's kind of one of those things that I think it's really, really important for us to not treat them as if they're wholly different from somebody else, from somebody who's straight that just struggles with a different kind of sin. Again, society would tell you that this is just who they are, right? They were born this way. Thank you, Lady Gaga, right? Like that's, that's the thing. But we as Christians know that that's not it. Like they are a product of a broken world. Like what they are doing, their particular kind of sin is a product of a broken world, uh, just like your particular kind of sin is, guys. Like that's all a product of of brokenness. So Jesus, you know, God God can use that, but it's one of those things that they're still broken. They're in need of the gospel. But kind of the second part of that is that they ask if they should change in order to have a relationship with Jesus. They don't need to change anything to come to Jesus. Now, don't start freaking out. To come to Jesus, they don't need to change anything because Jesus takes on all sins and takes on all sinners, right? We know that to be true, but they don't need to be cleaned up before they get to him. He cleans them up, right? Now, after they accept him, transformation of whatever their sinful lives are or desires will almost certainly have to follow, right? It will have to happen. So it's kind of one of those things that I've talked to people before when I've talked to them about the gospel. They're just like, man, I just, gosh, I just, I'm just way too messed up right now. Like I'm doing too many drugs. I'm, i I got too many girlfriends. I got too many things going on. Like I, I got to get my life cleaned up before I can come to Jesus. And the thing is, is some people are like, yeah, man, I get it. I get it. Well, you know, holler back at me when you get that all figured out. It's like, no, like Jesus didn't say, all right, uh, go and take care of all your sins and, and take care of all your bad habits and then come back to me and I will heal you. No, no, no. He, he's healing them at the front end. And then their lives are irrevocably changed on the back end, Right. And so again, I think it's so important not to put these people in a different category because society has like put them in the category. If you're going to put them in any category, put them in the category of lost sinner, put them in that category and then work on them from there. All right. Next question, guys who are your top three favorite speakers? Why? And are there specific books or videos that you would suggest? Um, so in terms of speakers, I really don't like self-helpy stuff. So I know a lot of people like, like John Maxwell or Simon Sinek and all like guys like that. Those people drive me insane. They've written the same book over and over and over and over again, and it's not really doing anything different. And so I guess when I think about speakers, I do typically lean more towards people that are like pastors or people that have podcasts. And so when I was thinking through my top three, I narrowed it down to these guys. So the first is Matt Chandler, which, up, oh, boom, surprise, surprise, another podcast where I mentioned Matt Chandler. But again, he's the lead teaching pastor at the Village Church down in Dallas. Just an awesome, awesome guy. Uh, episode 22 of this podcast, God is for God, kind of gives you a sense of who he is. So I would certainly suggest you go back and listen to that one. But two things that I really would suggest by Matt Chandler that you guys check out. The first is his book, Explicit Gospel, The Explicit Gospel. I've suggested this book over and over, pretty sure on this podcast, but it's one of the first books I put on the, the website for, you know, the 100 books every modern Christian man should read. Uh, that, that's on there. It's a great, great book. But also, if you have like a Sunday school or a home study or, or a group that, that meets in your house, like a couples group or something, his series called A Beautiful Design is incredible. I think it's 11 weeks. Um, and there's a book that goes along with it. I've listened to all the sermons on my own. I've watched them on my own. I've led a group of married couples through this. It is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Another speaker would be Tim Keller. So if you don't know him, he is a pastor of a Presbyterian church in New York city. And so he's been called uh, you know, a modern day CS Lewis. So it's a pretty high compliments on a guy like this. When you listen to him, uh, he's not going to blow your socks off with how he presents. He's not a fiery presenter. He's a very kind of calculated, very intellectual presenter, but really he's super solid. Uh, The podcast that they have out for Tim Keller, they release like just a handful of episodes a year, so it's not like a... It's not like something they release continuously, like it kind of keeps you caught up with his latest sermons or whatever. So I'm not really sure what that's about. If any of y'all know, please hit me up and let me know. But um, you can go back and listen to a lot of his old sermons and they're fantastic. But a book I would highly, highly recommend, again, one of the very earliest books on the book list was Reason for God reason for God. Fantastic book. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but essentially the first seven chapters of the book are the, like, the top seven objections he would get to the existence of God while he was working and in, in running his ministry in New York. And the last seven chapters are basically reason-based arguments for why believing in God is reasonable right? Just absolutely fantastic. So Tim Keller would probably be another one. And the last one would be Ben Shapiro. And so, uh, I know if you're not someone who's on the conservative side of a political aisle, you may not have a great, um, opinion of who Ben Shapiro is, but the thing about Ben Shapiro is he is an incredibly gifted debater. So if you've seen him speak, his speeches are are okay. They can be funny at times and and they're, they're informative, but watching him do Q and a and watching him debate either with someone across the stage from him or somebody in the audience, he is absolutely fantastic. So even if you don't agree with his point of views, I mean, he's an Orthodox Jew who is very, very conservative politically, even if you're not either one of those things, or you can't align with either of those things or square those he's still a great person to watch. Just how he goes through debates, he really doesn't allow any wiggle room when people are trying to like weasel out of, a, of an answer or something like that. He just kind of goes right after him. And, and again, a great way to get some more information on Ben Shapiro is just listen to his podcast. He released an episode six days a week. So he's got his normal show during the week, Monday through Friday. And then he just released a new show on Sundays where he's basically doing long form interview, discussion interviews with people. And those have been fantastic, fantastic so far. So, so again, my top three favorite speakers would be Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, and Ben Shapiro. All right, next question. How do we combat the argument that church is boring to manly men with no history in the church? What changes need are needed? Is there too much traditionalism for it to be effective in modern day American men? Okay, so a lot of good stuff here, and, and we've touched on some of this before, but it's, it's a really well-worded and well-done question. The very first thing is is We shouldn't hide the fact that church will be boring for a lot of guys. Like we essentially, we can't hide it because it is for a lot of modern men, manly men that don't have a church background. It is boring. And the same goes for people that do have a church background. They come to church and they're bored and really they shouldn't be. Like, think about all the things you spend your time on and, and your effort on, and these things are incredibly uh, stimulating and exciting, and why is church not like that? It really shouldn't be that way. Um, and I think there's, there's several things that I would do that would change to change that. First is to really drive a wedge between the idea that a church is a building, right? Because it's not. The church is a people. The ecclesia, it's a people, right? And so I think so many men think, okay, I got to get dressed in this collared shirt and, and drive into a building where I just, I'm supposed to smile and tell everybody how happy I am and how much I'm praying for them and listen to this crappy music and these stupid sermons. And just that's, that's what it is in their brain because they don't see it as a community. They don't see it as a group of people. And guys, I've fallen into this as well where I go to these churches and there's, there's no community. And part of that is my fault. And then I just, you know, want to stop going. Oh, ah, this is boring. This isn't meeting my needs type of a thing. But another thing I think that would be a big help for guys is no more, no more beta male preachers and pastors. Again, I'm kind of picking on beta males, this podcast, but for men to follow another man, they have to see themselves as, as wanting to follow that person, that person, like having qualities that they would want. And, and so many pastors, lead teaching pastors are just people that you just, gosh, you just wouldn't want them in your foxhole. They, they, you'd want them advising you on a spiritual matter, but you really wouldn't want them going through the crap with you. And it's because they're betas. Like you wouldn't really want that. You know, another change I would make would be, you know, no more boyfriend Jesus worship music. And again, I I keep hinting at it. I promise you an episode is coming where I'm going to spend the entire time talking about modern worship music, but it is pushing men away. It's pushing alphas away. It's pushing manly men away. When they look at the lyrics and even if in their fullness of their heart, they want to sing them. They're just like, sounds like I'm singing to my boyfriend. Uh, yeah, just weird. I thought this was like the Lord of the universe. And here we are talking about how we want to hug him and cuddle him and all those things. So I, I would change that another thing, you know, change, no more Ted talks with Bible verses. I've said that a lot in this podcast, but no more Ted talks with Bible verses where it's like, okay, here's the pastor's opinion. Um, and we're just going to sprinkle some scripture on top of that. Like, I don't think men are really attracted to that. I think men are attracted to being challenged. You know, I was talking to this pastor out on in South Carolina and they have a really thriving uh, group of men that go to their church, like an absolutely fired up group of men. It's because the, the pastor challenges them directly. And he works at a, at a church, he runs a church where there's a lot of uh, special operations guys that, that go to the church. And man, it's just kind of one of those things where those guys can kind of tell, they can smell a beta from a mile away, right? And so, so this is, it's a different mindset and, and they kind of go at worship a little bit differently. But the other thing that this question brought up is, is talked about traditionalism, like our church is too traditional. The, the stats actually show the opposite, that when church are more traditionalistic, it leads to stronger Christianity and stronger involvement from the men that, you know, traditionalism means strict adherence to the Bible. It's not like the Bible plus. And, and I guess what I mean by the Bible, plus is you know it's not you know the pastor's opinions plus scripture, which is what we said. it's not the Bible plus modern culture, it's not the Bible plus social justice warrior language changes it's not that it's just the Bible, and then we look at it, you know we we get it exegeted from the pastor from the pulpit, and then we try to live it out and so those are things that I think are really incredibly incredibly important, and again, I could have i gone into the entire podcast and just talked about this one question. It's a really, really well done question. There's a lot of things that need to be changed uh, for things to be more attractive inside the church for men, but those are a few that I would start with. All right, next question. If you could go back in time and experience one event in history, what would it be and why? Um, So I guess I'll give you the duh answer and then I'll come up with, with a better one. But the duh answer would be the resurrection. So that's kind of like the hinge point of the entirety of Christianity. So I would like to just kind of chill outside the tomb just to make sure, just to make sure nothing crazy went on and all that. Like, again, I feel like we have a lot of evidence that tells us exactly what happened. But if you could witness any event in history, I would want to witness a crucifixion and the resurrection. I mean, as gruesome as that would be to watch, it would be something that I would want to watch. Um, And then I guess the the other thing that I would look at, gosh, man, there's so many different things that I would want to look at. You know, I've, I thought about maybe going back and, you know, watching the battle of Gettysburg or, or maybe watching some of the battles between, you know, Greece and Sparta, you know, uh, just different thing or Troy and Sparta. Sorry, I, I think I messed it up. But like going to some, watching some of those ancient battles, I think would be really, really interesting. But, um, as morbid and as weird as this might sound, I would like to go witness, um, Julius Caesar being assassinated. Like, again, I know that sounds completely, completely strange, but it was such an insane event. Just think about it. It was a murder that we, we talk about thousands of years later. Like, like think about the number of murders that, that have happened in the history of the planet. And I think that would be a really, really interesting thing to kind of watch, like to see, the, the, the looks on the faces of the senators as Julius Caesar's walking in and, uh, especially the conspirators that, that actually took him out. Like, I, I just think that would be really, really interesting to watch. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that like makes me a complete weirdo to want to watch that, but I think that'd be interesting to see. All right, guys, next question what advice do you have for this generation of instant gratification individuals who seem to not be prepared for a rainy day in terms of financial responsibility? Okay, guys, this is something that I, I actually deal with a lot in, in my, my normal everyday job. But the, the thing about it is a lot of young people, we'll say millennials, we'll pick on the millennials, right? So these are these are individuals who are spending a lot of money up front in their careers, um, going on these big, lavish vacations, uh, just doing a lot of big living earlier in their lives, and then you know they start saving for retirement maybe in their mid to late 30s, something like that. The thing about it, um, and this kind of gets into the psychology of what's happened, a lot of these individuals have watched either their parents or their grandparents or their, their friends' parents or grandparents, they've watched these people save their entire lives. So they were saving for that trip or saving for that car, that sports car, or or saving for for something in retirement. And then they watch them get to retirement. They get into their mid to late sixties and you know what? They don't want to go walk around the Coliseum anymore. Like, you know, their body hurts. They haven't taken care of their body. And so they don't want to spend all that time on an airplane and then go over there and walk around and have their feet hurt walking around on the, the cobblestone roads and all these different things. And so I think some of them instinctively are like, man, why do I want to live for later whenever I can do things now? And so they are certainly sacrificing the future for now. And so this would be the advice I would give to people that are in that generation is that retirement's coming for everybody. And and the reality is, is that in general, people are living longer. Um, Social security will not be there. I'd be, you know, absolutely surprised to see it last another decade, but it's not going to be there. So there's not that safety net that some people have had. Um, and I don't think even if a Bernie type person gets into office, there's not really going to be a safety net for you provided by the government either, or at least not one that you would want. And so I think that there is a balance that you can have between living a, a big and, you know, fulfilling life early when your body works and when you have energy and you have all those different things, but you have to be putting away something for the future Like you have to have, oh crap money. Like, oh crap. My wife and I lost our jobs on the same day. We need to be able to eat food for the next 30 days, 90 days, you know, 180 days. We need to be able to have that money there. So that's something that's important, but also nothing can beat uh, compound interest. Guys, you got to start that interest going as early as possible because then it just gets super, super sweet in your old age. And so at the end of the day, I know a lot of people don't care. The reality is, is the statistics are pretty damning that only about 7% of Americans, if they work their current financial plan, are going to be able to retire someday and stay retired. Only 7%. And, and that's crazy. 93% of Americans, 93 out of 100 American adults is not going to be able to retire and stay retired. And that's the important thing when we talk about retirement is it's both of those things. It's not just stopping working someday. It's never having to go back. So the thing that we're seeing a lot now is people retire at 65. They've got you know 10 years worth of money. They're 75. They're alive. They're completely healthy. And now they're broke. Right. And they're wondering, how did I get here? Well, it's because you didn't plan right. You didn't have anybody helping you. And so these are people that, at the age of 75 or maybe even older, they're having to go and and work a job that they don't want to. Maybe stocking shelves or greeting people at the front of a store. And you know, gainful employment is gainful employment. So I'm certainly not diminishing that. But you know, it's it's a problem for a lot of people. So the thing is, is you don't want to be in those shoes. But every year that you don't make a decision to start saving for retirement is just a year that you'll never be able to get back. And in a lot of ways, you're not going to be able to catch up either. And the what I've seen is people, you know, when they're twenty five, they're like, ah, oh, I can wait a while. When they're thirty five, oh, you know, we'll deal with that later. When the kids are grown, oh, I'm forty five now. Gosh, things are just way too busy and complicated. Life's too expensive. And now they're fifty five, and they're like, okay, I'm really gonna buckle down and start retiring. It's, it's almost too late at that point. So, a little bit of a problem. All right, next question: Is a hot dog a sandwich? Okay, is a hot dog a sandwich? All right, so uh, yeah, why wouldn't a hot dog be a sandwich? I know I've seen people debate this, but it's bread that you fold over meat. Seems like it's a sandwich, right? I don't know if, if there's like if there needs to be more nuance to this question, but it's like I don't know if if you had like a Reuben and someone's like, "Oh, that's a good-looking sandwich." And you were like, "No, it's not a sandwich, it's a Reuben." Or uh it's not a sandwich, it's a hot ham and cheese. Like that'd be ridiculous to be like, "Oh, a cool sandwich." You're like, "It's a hot dog." Like I I don't know, that's weird. I don't know who snuck this question in there. Next question. Actually, uh, wait, how many questions we got left? We got a couple of questions left here, so stick with me. Next question. What is something that you believe that other people think is crazy? Okay. That's a cool question. Um, I guess the first thing is, is that baseball is the greatest sport ever, right? I got tons of people that will disagree with me on that. Just go back to episode 15 of this podcast. It was called baseball is life. If you want to get my, uh, really romantic views on, on baseball, but that's not a super popular opinion. I mean, again, I live right smack dab in the middle of college football country, and so everyone's just like, oh, football's the best, blah, 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 even though they didn't go to the school they're rooting for, never played a down of football, but uh, that's neither here nor there for those people. But that's uh, that's an opinion that people think is crazy. They think baseball's boring and, and blah, blah, blah. It's because they don't understand it. They never played, whatever, whatever. I guess some other things that I think are, um, that people think are crazy, um, and this is going to make some of you go insane, there's a lot of super, super popular bands or or singers that I think are just atrocious, like almost unfathomably bad. And so again, get ready for your jaw to hit the floor here. So The Beatles, U2, uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Bob Dylan, Nirvana, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, I mean, these bands are awful. They are so bad. And people are like, no, they mean so much to music and they they mean so much to this and blah, blah, blah. All I know is when their music comes on, my ears start to hurt. They're just bad. And I guess we'll just keep going with this. Things that people think I'm crazy. I'm kind of that way with movies as well. There's a lot of movies that a ton of people think are awesome that I think are just terrible. So, uh, let's go to all the Lord of the Rings. Those were terrible. Um, any star Wars movie that I've ever seen, all those were bad. Like, I can't believe people watch those and actually enjoy them. Uh, what's another one? Oh, Godfather part one and part two. Really? You're telling me Godfather part two is the greatest movie ever. I spent six hours of my life in college and I'll never be able to get that time back. I just didn't get it. I was like, this is the movie. And people are like, oh, well, what do you want? Just blow them up, shoot them up. Are you just not, you know, sophisticated enough? No, no, no. I just, I want to be entertained. I don't want to be bored. And all those movies were super, super boring. Uh, So uh, (laughs) I guess those are some other things. And then obviously you all know that I think modern worship music is uh, almost completely garbage. So uh, there's a few things. So if you like me up to this point, uh, maybe you don't like me anymore because those things, but hopefully I can save you with the last question here. So let's launch in. Last question of the day. What are the best tools for a man to keep his masculinity and his Christian orthodoxy and survive in our current culture? Okay, so you could go a lot of different ways with this question, but I'll just try to keep it uh, simple here. Um, The first thing I would say is to actually study scripture. So notice how I didn't say just, you know, scripture reading. It's actual scriptural study. And so that's one adjustment that I've made for me in, in my Bible study for this year is that I'm going to take deep dives into books. So I'm about to take a deep dive into Romans because just reading through stuff, you can pick some things up, but if you don't understand the nuance or the context or things like that, it could be a problem for you. Um, uh, some other tools would be just podcasts and books, you know, ones that agree with you, but also podcasts and books from perspectives that you actually disagree with. So maybe listen to an atheist podcast or a podcast that disagrees with you politically or on a subject matter that you don't typically find incredibly entertaining or or exciting. So I think those would be things that would be uh, good for you to to kind of go through and look at. Um, uh, Yeah, aside from that, it's basically whatever content is out there that keeps you cultivating spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. I mean, for a lot of guys, the spiritual stuff is easy for them. They love the Bible study. They, they love doing those types of things. For other guys, it's kind of hard. So that's the one you need to cultivate. You know, some guys don't really do books or podcasts. It's just like, ah, oh, it's too much, too much learning, blah, blah, blah. They have really small-minded viewpoints. So that's the one they need to look at. You have these other guys that are just squishy. You know, they're just not tough physically. And uh, that's something that they need to look at. So in terms of the tools that you need uh, to keep your masculinity, I think you guys know where you fall short. I think it doesn't really take a whole lot of introspection to, to basically deal with that and, and to figure out your, your blind spots uh, or your areas that you really need to work on. And here's the thing. If you're that guy who just doesn't have any idea, I have no clue what I'm terrible at and what I would work on. Ask your friends, ask your friends, ask your coworkers that you trust, ask your spouse, like ask your family. Like I believe they will give you some good feedback. I mean, if they're good people, I think that they'll give you some super, super solid feedback on all that. So again, guys, you can find the tools. You just have to be willing to go out there and take care of it. So guys, as always, thank you so much for giving me those questions. If you have questions that you want to ask for the podcast, again, I say this all the time, but you can either email me or respond in some of the social medias or guys, if you're out there and you know me and you have my number, just text it my way. I kind of put everything into a bank and then I kind of get them all together and then we think uh, about how we can put the questions in there later. So the email is just info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. And obviously you can follow us on all the social medias and uh, give us feedback there if you want to add questions for us to answer. All right, guys, before I let you out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. And today I've got something that I need from you guys. Okay. So uh, I've been looking at a lot of different podcasts and I'm actually going to be doing a podcast at the end of this year where I go into my favorite podcast episodes for the year. But I would like your recommendations for good manly podcasts for podcasts that specifically help you cultivate spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a lot of good ones that I listen to. I've suggested a lot of them on this show, on this podcast, but if there are others out there that you think I need to be listening to, I will give every one of them a try. So I've brought a lot of podcasts in that I've almost sent out just as quickly as I brought them in because they just don't really fit. But uh, that's the thing I want from you guys. I normally give you all some information. I want y'all to shoot some stuff back at me. So again, hit me up info at life info at life or you can hit me up on social media. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, we'll be sure to find it in the post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us a five-star review. The podcast has been growing all year, and part of that is because of you guys leaving the five-star reviews and then leaving a couple of sentences letting us know what you like. So please keep doing that. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. So if you want me to come speak to your team, to your camp, to your company, whatever, hit me up again, info at UndauntedLife, info at Undaunted.Life. Our website is www.Undaunted.Life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life, or on Facebook.com backslash UndauntedLife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song, King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.